Our reading this evening is taken from the book of Exodus. You can find it on page 58. And we're starting to read at the second chapter. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levi woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with patar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent a female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she said, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up, came to their rescue, and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Where is he? Rule asked his daughter. Why did you leave him? He invited him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and they cried for help because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. 
So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Uh, do keep uh, that uh, passage open as we look at it together this morning. Let's see, let me pray before we uh, dive in. Father, thank you for your words uh, this evening uh, to us. Thank you, it's a living word that uh, speaks now, uh, speaks of the gospel. We pray, Lord, we will see that uh, this evening. Please help us uh, to hear your voice and to be encouraged and, and challenged by what we hear. Please be at work in our hearts uh, deeply to change us. And make us those people of faith, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do we react when we find ourselves uh, under increasing pressure? Uh, it's been interesting reflecting over this past week and some of the changes uh, that have taken place just under the reign of, of the Queen. Admittedly, a long reign, but uh, uh, one of those changes, no doubt, has been that kind of growing way in which... Christianity has increasingly become marginalised uh, within our culture um, and moved, as it were, to the, sort of the, the margins of, of the political landscape and more. And, and for some Christians, I guess that's taken us by surprise, as once uh, that what was honoured and admired, at least tolerated, uh, is increasingly viewed as immoral, uh, offensive, even a danger to civilization. Now, I mean, we feel that pressure, don't we, often, I think. Uh, sure, we hear of uh, stories of what God is doing in other parts of the world. But here, it feels at times as if God has, has abandoned his church. As we see it, uh, weak, uh, divided, ineffective, uh, compromised uh, and opposed. And when we move, as it were, from the national, perhaps, to the, the personal, perhaps uh, we individually find ourselves under increasing pressure. Um, assaulted on all sides, perhaps by difficulties, or uncertainties, anxieties. And it leaves us, I think, reeling. Uh, uh, it rocks us in our faith in God at times. God, the God who's supposed to be in control, a God who's supposed to be uh, for us, uh, with us, not against us. Well, if our faith feels under pressure, uh, yeah, perhaps even at breaking point this evening, uh, if that's your experience and is it your world, uh, then you have a picture, I think, of the situation facing God's people at the start of the book of Exodus. Once uh, there were welcome guests, weren't they, in Egypt, um, but now they find themselves uh, marginalised, uh, labouring under this terrible pressure and threat. And if you remember, it all starts with a change of ruler, uh, a new king coming to the throne who doesn't know his history doesn't know that the man called Joseph, who was a Hebrew, who saved not only his own people, but the Egyptians too, uh, from a terrible famine. Well, as these Hebrew people begin to grow in Egypt, uh, this new king feared that they might destabilise his uh, country, his kingdom, and become a threat to his power. And so he enslaves them. But rather than halting the growth of those uh, Hebrews, uh, they continue to increase. We saw that last week, didn't we? And so Pharaoh comes up with a new plan uh, to halt their growth, a, a secret plan. Uh, in which he forces the Hebrew midwives to selectively murder all boys born uh, to Hebrew families. And we saw that, that plan come to nothing last week as those uh, midwives very bravely and courageously resist the power and the might of Pharaoh because they fear God rather than the Egyptian king. 
But far from backing off, uh, Pharaoh comes up with plan C. Exodus uh, chapter 1, verse 22. And Pharaoh gave uh, this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So it's gloves off, isn't it? What was secret now becomes sort of public policy as this paranoid despot enlists the help of his own people to uh, neutralise, as it were, that growing threat he perceives from this growing nation. Just imagine for a moment, just being part of that Hebrew community as that plan becomes reality. Parents, mothers, powerless as their children are torn from them and thrown into the, the Nile. Where's God in all this? I think they were asking that question. Uh, what about those promises that he'd made to their ancestor, their, their father, Abraham? Promises to make them a great nation, uh, to give them a land of their own, uh, a promise of blessing, and even to be God's agent of blessing. And hadn't God said that those who cursed his people, they themselves would discover they were under God's judgment and curse? So much for those promises. Indeed, uh, the God who promised to be with them well, now seems to have abandoned the evil of triumph, hasn't it? And here's Pharaoh, uh, evil personified, if you like. And it seems that uh, he's in control. God is nowhere to be seen. Before we uh, write off God, it's always a dangerous thing to do, isn't it? Uh, and his promises. Uh, we need to recall, actually, what God had promised his people. See, uh, Abraham had indeed received incredible promises of nationhood, of blessing and land. But God also promised, didn't he, that those great blessings would come and be forged in and through great suffering and evil. Let me read from Genesis 15. Uh, as God, for the second time, makes promises to Abraham with increasing detail and clarity. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish that nation, they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. See, the pathway uh, to blessing was not going to be straightforward or easy. God speaks of the very events that we saw unfolding, I think, last week. Homelessness, slavery, dreadful mistreatment. And this miserable and painful experience would not quickly disappear. 400 years. But in spite of that, God gives his insurance that all that happens, uh, and in all that happens, God would not abandon them. Okay, listen to what God says to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, as he prepares to move to Egypt. I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. It's a striking promise, because we see that promise starting to be unfolded, as it were, last week, as that tiny group of people becomes increasingly a nation. But it's that promise, I think, of God's presence with them in Egypt that's so significant, even in suffering and misery. God promises he won't abandon them, even when the circumstances seem to be saying otherwise. Just we I was thinking about some of the promises that God makes uh, to us as his people. There are some great promises, aren't there? Uh, promises of astonishing blessing, a relationship with the living God through Jesus. Wow. 
full and free forgiveness. Amazing. Uh, God's power and presence through his indwelling uh, of the Spirit in us. And one day, resurrection bodies in which we will enjoy God's new perfect creation. But along with those promises of blessing, God also warns us, doesn't he, of pain sometimes and hardship and frustration in the presence. As for now, we continue to live in a broken world, a fallen world, a world under God's judgment. And no one was more explicit than that on that point than Jesus himself, the one in whom those promises are fulfilled. I've told you these things, he says, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And in addition to this, as as followers of Jesus, uh, we face, don't we, the additional challenge and hardship in the form of opposition and rejection because of our allegiance to Jesus. Again, Jesus doesn't mince his words, does he? He says, remember what I've told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So as well as holding on to those promises of blessing, we need to acknowledge uh, those promises too of hardship, suffering. Uh, Promises, I think, given to to strengthen us, to assure us that God hasn't lost control, that he hasn't abandoned us just like he hadn't abandoned the people in Egypt. Indeed, as we saw last week, it's not just in spite of suffering, it is through suffering that God promises to fulfil his promises. I think that's wonderfully seen in our passage tonight. You see, uh, although God's hardly mentioned in this chapter, uh, his fingerprints are all over uh, this part of Scripture. Well, if chapter 1 ends on the bleakest of notes, or as evil uh, expressed and personified in this man, Pharaoh, holds all the aces, what we actually find is that when evil is most rampant, God is very clearly and unmistakably in control and fulfilling his promises. So here's the first thing I want to see. It's the longest point. A a reminder of God's overruling providence. So be trusting in him. So the story kind of shifts, doesn't it, from the the, the macro scale down to one family. Let me read again from verse 1. Now a man, the tribe of Levi, married married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid uh, hid him for three months But when she could hide him no longer, she got a a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen uh, to him. Just in chapter 1, we saw two women, two midwives, being courageous in faith, holding on to God's promises. Here we see two more, uh, a husband and a wife, uh, showing that same trust in God. Don't get to know their names at this point, but their act of faith even makes it in that famous roll call of the faithful who trust God against the odds. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says of the couple. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. It's an act of faith. To see to defy Pharaoh risks more than the life of Moses. It risks the life of the entire family, I suspect. Terrible risk. And perhaps that faith is reflected here in the details. As that child can no longer be hidden, his mother makes a floating, as it were, basket. Uh, Literally, the word in Hebrew is the word ark. And that's how, of course, people were saved. uh, By God, just a few chapters earlier in, in, in the book of Genesis. 
God saving from a watery grave those who trusted his promise. Well, this is an act of faith. It soon becomes abundant here that the events that follow are clearly, aren't they, in God's sovereign control. And I've just been gripped this week and, and encouraged, I think, in my faith as I see God's invisible hand guiding and dictating events, even in the detail, uh, with his good and gracious purposes in view. So Moses is cast on the waters, uh, and who should appear at this spot than the daughter of Pharaoh? And I think if Moses had been found by any other person, probably in that country, uh, he would have been food for the crocodiles. But she is the one who notices the basket and the baby. And knowing it's a Hebrew boy, uh, she could have immediately sealed its fate as decreed by her father. And yet this baby lets out a sort of a timely cry, doesn't he? And her heart's drawn. And uh, she commits immediately to, to caring for this child, keeping it safe, even from uh, her own father. Uh, but she needs someone to nurse the child. And just at that moment, uh, Moses' sister, uh, watching from a distance, perhaps fearless and curious like a, like a young child, uh, appears and is able to offer an immediate solution to a very pressing problem. Shall I go and get the one, uh, one of the Hebrew women uh, to nurse the baby for you? Well, the screaming baby doesn't provide much opportunity for reflection, and the princess uh, jumps at the offer. And within a short space of time, Moses is reunited uh, with his astonished, I think, and grateful mother who is now in, the, in a wonderful twist of irony, being paid out of Pharaoh's own coffers to care for him. And it's an unusual arrangement. Moses' mother will be there for him in those early uh, and formative years before he's transferred, um, perhaps as a teenager, to the, the court of Pharaoh himself. I was just thinking, uh, those early years of being raised by his own mother and father uh, would have been critical, wouldn't they, for, for Moses? Uh, giving him that deep sense of, of who he was, uh, something that would remain with him even as he takes up his position within the royal family. Just imagine uh, Moses' parents for a moment. Uh, they know that time is short, uh, seeking to do all they could to, to instill in that boy an understanding of his true identity, encouraging him in, in, in a simple and real faith that would ultimately, ultimately shape him and captivate him more than all the attractions of the royal palace. I bet it focused their prayers, um, praying that as he was surrounded by those many Egyptian gods in the future, he would trust uh, the true God, who not only given him life, but had preserved it and provided for it. What a blessing to be raised in faith. Uh, that real and practical faith we see in Moses' parents, and so uh, they are commended, aren't they, as we saw. And wonderfully, I think, you know, God answers their prayers, doesn't he, for Moses. And what an encouragement for us is if we are parents to be investing and praying for our children, and maybe our grandchildren to that end, and doing so not out of fear, but in a God who is faithful, who is able to direct uh, uh, in ways that we might not be able to see or understand or imagine. But also, I think, what a challenge. Uh, our pagan world, our non-Christian cultures, very quick to tell us what is most important for our kids and what we should strive to provide for them. But here is our calling as parents, I think, to seek by God's help to raise our children in faith, to teach it, to, to model it, and above all, to pray for its flourishing in them that they might discover and trust the one 
in whom all blessings and promises are found. Well, when we next meet Moses, the boy now grown up, as Hebrews 11 says, we do meet a man who knows uh, who he is and the people he belongs to. And he refuses to be identified as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, as Hebrews 11 says, and enjoy those fleeting pleasures. But chooses rather to be among God's people, to be mistreated, because he knows the value of what God promises. Well, whether we're parents or not, uh, that same choice, doesn't it, faces us, as Moses uh, found, which home, I guess, will ultimately shape our behaviour, our lives. Are we going to choose the the pleasures, the fleeting pleasures of the world, what it offers? Are we going to choose those um, as our brothers and sisters who belong to Christ? And even if it means being dishonoured for the name of Christ. Of course, in this chapter, uh, as you notice, you see a man, don't you, who's still got a lot to learn. Um, He may know who he is and which side he belongs to, but he's not clear how to live out his identity quite yet wisely and well. And so very soon, don't we, we find him taking matters into his own hands, uh, dishing out like for like, uh, as he witnessed a a fellow Hebrew being uh, beaten by an Egyptian. Well, it does reveal, doesn't it, where his allegiance lies, but it also, I think, reveals an immaturity and rashness that soon comes back to bite. So immediately we find him losing the respect of his own Hebrew people and then the protection and favour of Pharaoh himself, from whom he now must flee. I think in one sense you could argue in his actions that we see something of how Egypt is still very much part of his DNA. Uh, Yes, he may be the one for whom God will uh, liberate his people. But here I think we find him behaving more like an Egyptian slave master. There's even something of the murderer Pharaoh, I think, in Moses, as he resorts to human might to do what he thinks is right. And then, uh, for the next 40 years, the one who is going to become Israel's deliverer is sort of, well, it seems like sidelined, taken out of the action, to spend decades wandering around in the desert looking after someone else's sheep. Certainly a decisive moment, isn't there? There's no going back to the old life. But in this dramatic reversal, this kind of riches to rags sort of story, I think, again, we see, don't we, God's invisible hand at work, delivering Moses from that pull of Egypt, but now, I think, preparing him for the works that God has prepared in advance for him to do. Again, there's so much to see as God continues to shape Moses for his role of leader. Uh, Yes, leadership that will involve him uh, shepherding, not sheep, but his own people for 40 years in the same deserts. And that's a very striking thing, I think, here in this passage. Not only do we see God working his purposes out uh, in Moses' life, but even, I think, using Moses' weaknesses and his foolishness and somehow weaving that into uh, his plans for his people's deliverance. Indeed, in God's providence, there's nothing wasted, is there? Uh, as he reveals that he's much more able than we imagine to use even human sin to serve his great purposes of salvation. What could have been better uh, for Moses than 40 years of caring for sheep in the wilderness as we think about what he will go on to do in years to come? But not only does God prepare Moses by developing and bringing on his leadership skills Perhaps I think more importantly, I think he continues to work in in Moses' heart. 
It's interesting how he ends up amongst relatives. Uh, Midianites were descendants of Abraham, and it seems God worshippers too. Indeed, he lives under the same roof as the one who is the leader, the priest of this small outpost of worshippers of God. And it seems to leave a very deep mark on Moses. Indeed, um, at that significant moment where he holds uh, his son in his hands and gives him his name, he gives him that name Gershom. He says, literally, uh, that's better in, in, in the original, I have been a sojourner or a wanderer in a foreign land. And I don't think he's talking about Midian. I think he's talking about Egypt. He's speaking about the past, not the present. I've lived in Egypt and I wasn't at home, but now amongst God's worshippers, I am at home. And next week we'll see God uh, continuing that work of of turning Moses into a worshipper as he reveals himself personally at the burning bush. See, if Moses is going to be useful in God's purposes uh, uh, to do God's work, he has to first be a worshipper. And once more, we see that in the details of how God does this, how he prepares his servants uh, for ministry. Again, very simple application, but if we want to be useful servants and workers in God's kingdom, it begins, doesn't it, first by becoming worshippers. And as we begin a new week, perhaps seeking to serve God, let's, let's begin each day in worship, even before we commit ourselves to those works that he has prepared for us to do. Well, there's much here that I've not explored Uh, That should make our mouths drop open, I think, as we see God at work in the detail, often unseen, perhaps. And by the end of our chapter, as God has been at work, we see that God is now ready to take the next step. He's heard the cries of his people. He's remembered them. Not that he's forgotten, but now is the moment of action. We'll see that action beginning to take shape. But again, in all the twists and turns of this little story, Uh, We see God's power, his sovereignty uh, uh, over history, over individuals, even over sin. So I'd say let's let's be encouraged by that tonight, encouraged to keep our antenna up, even this week, to spot where God might be working in places perhaps we haven't spotted before. Um, And even when we can't see what he's doing, keeping that eye of faith tuned to God's promises. Perhaps this evening you look back and you feel that things in your life have been wasted years or missed opportunities. I think we should just not underestimate God's ability to use even our failures, those wasted times perhaps it seems to us, for his great purposes and for greater usefulness in his kingdom. Sometimes we sing, don't we? We sang this morning, our God is a great big God. How wonderful by his grace to be part of his amazing plan. Very briefly, as we finish, uh, I can find it. Here we go. A breathtaking glimpse of our Saviour. Uh, be thankful. We're going to see this again and again over these next few weeks. As this story of rescue unfolds, it gives us this glimpse of that greatest of all rescues that through faith we've been caught up in too, if we are Christians. And we'll keep seeing this again and again over these coming weeks. Uh, Jesus foreshadowed. Uh, in this person, Moses, and in the rescue that God brings about through him. Again, we haven't got time to make all the connections this evening, uh, even in this one chapter, but they are strong, aren't they? They're striking. Like Moses, Jesus was born under a death sentence. that had been issued by a paranoid king who would do anything to cling on to power. 
And like Moses, when his life seemed so precarious, Jesus was protected uh, by trusting parents, yes, but ultimately by a faithful father. And ultimately it was God who ensured that his plans that focused on that child would not be thwarted, however determined the opposition, however great the threats. Well, if, if Moses' parents had some premonition or was revealed to them that their son was no ordinary child, how much more so that child that Mary cradled uh, in her arms, the one known as Emmanuel, God with us, the one called Jesus, the one who would save his people uh, from their sin. We'll do read the rest of this chapter again uh, and, and make those connections. But just one thing struck me uh, as I finish um, this week. Moses, that the prince of Egypt chose to leave the comfort, didn't he, and security of that royal home to become God's deliverer. Again, as we saw in Hebrews, he chose to be mistreated. He chose disgrace above those treasures that were rightfully his. And it says he did that because he was looking forward to a reward, something good ahead. The same writer of the Hebrews speaks of another saviour, another deliverer who would do just that and much more. For the joy and reward that lay ahead, uh, this saviour not only chose disgrace by identifying with downtrodden people, enslaved by sin, he embraced the humiliation of a cross, despised the shame, and he even became sin for us and fell under its curse that we might have that curse lifted from us, that we might win our freedom and be delivered from that misery of sin and its slavery and uh, the triumph of death over us. Philippians 2, it's a great passage, describes that wonderful rags, uh, riches to rags story the Lord Jesus uh, chose. And it's echoed, isn't it, in Moses' story. Right, says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a slave. And being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. And Jesus did that, didn't he? Anticipating the joy of winning us our freedom, of making us his people and welcoming us into his eternal home and showering us with every spiritual blessing that is his, that he wants to give us for all eternity. When we catch a little glimpse of what Jesus did for us, even in this story, doesn't it humble us? I hope it does. It makes us want to exalt Jesus, see him exalted and honoured in the lives of others too, uh, those who he came to liberate and rescue. Well, let's wonder, even tonight, at the rescuer that God sent and the lengths he went to uh, to be our saviour. Let's do that this week, so that we are to his worshippers and therefore useful in serving his good purposes. Well, for the joy and blessings that Jesus has secured for us, let's be those who endure, even under pressure, disappointment. Let's keep fixing our eyes on Jesus as we can be encouraged and people of faith. Let me pray as you finish. Father, thank you so much for the unfolding of this amazing story.
uh, a story that on one level seems to be devoid of your name, but yet we see your fingerprints all over the details as you work your good purposes in the mess and the sin of, of this world, of evil. Father, often our lives feel like they've unraveled, and yet we know, because you promised that you are still in control, you are with us, you don't abandon us. So, Father, I pray, whatever we're going through, this, even this week, that we will know that, and we will wonder at the God who came in person to experience the humiliation of being not just a human being, uh, but a sinful one, uh, one that carried our sin for us. Lord, please uh, uh, help us, uh, give us that sense of joy and wonder, and help us to persevere, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.